Thank you. It's James, right? James and the worship team. Man, that's awesome. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to come and be able to be with you today. Worship with you, right? That's what we're here for. We come together to worship, to build each other up, draw strength from one another. But uh, really, life is a walk of worship, is it not? Uh, We have been called to worship Him and uh, love Him with all of our hearts. So no matter where we are, uh, we get to experience the joy of worship. But being able to come together and do it in the house that we have built, called the house of the Lord here, to be able to do it together is great. So my name is Eric Mitchell. I'm grateful to be able to be with you today. My wife Amy Lynn is with me this morning. We hail from the big town of Melbourne. And um, delighted to be able to come up here. Uh, she's uh, a professor culinary at... Um, the director of culinary at Ozarka. So she gets to tour around a little bit more than I do. Uh, and so she's a little familiar with the area. But I'm delighted to be able to be here and just share with you uh, um, my heart this morning uh, as what God has laid upon me to give to you this morning. And I have no idea what he's going to do with it, right? That's up to him and you. Uh, my responsibility is to be obedient and come and share what is uh, laid upon my heart to, to share. Uh, and so for, for that sake, I do not hold myself to account of how you deal with it. That's up to you and God. My, I'm held to account by doing it, right? I have, to, I have to do what God tells me to do. And so I'm here. We're going to share a little bit today uh, about the ministry of Paul. One of the things that was near and dear to his heart was reconciliation. Reconciliation is simply the idea of knowing that things were different and things are not good and things change and things were made right. And it is between us and God and God calls us to make it between us and us, right? He calls us to be able to say, okay, now you're a minister. We're going to find out about that today and what that looks like and what drove Paul, right, to have such a compassionate fervent desire for reconciliation and i hope that this ministers to your heart that you will get something from it we'll start with uh uh hopefully uh most of you received a little heart trinket when you came in this morning uh if you didn't there may be a few left in the basket but it's just a little heart you're gonna know what to do with this a little bit later in our uh time together so hopefully you have one of those with you um, start with a, uh, a story of a guy who uh, winds up uh, dropping out of being a pretty good football player and moving to Greenville, Texas. He moves to Greenville, Texas to marry his longtime sweetheart and uh, start a family there. And uh, they get going and they have a baby. And not before long after that, uh, the father, this guy, Arthur, is struck by a vehicle, struck by a truck. And miraculously, he doesn't break a bone in his body. But he has uh, traumatic brain uh, injuries that take a little time for him to recover from. And because of these traumatic brain injuries, uh, his behavior is, is different. I think we could probably uh, call it post-traumatic stress syndrome in his life uh, if we were to describe it today. Uh, But he began to uh, act out on his wife, domestic abuse and violence and verbal abuse and 
and um, be one kind of guy at home, but then when he got out, he would be somebody else, right? He would be this nice guy who was a caring father and a caring husband. Well, the wife finally got to the place. Miss Adele had enough. She had to leave, right? So uh, according to the social circles around him, there was probably no chance but for this young man, this boy, to stay with his father because everybody thought his father was a nice guy. Well, of course, the father did not have his wife around to take out his frustration and anger on, and so he began to do it to the boy. Until the place to a point where this boy was a freshman in high school, and the father developed pancreatic cancer. And uh, he wound up in the hospital. It was very traumatic for him. Uh, But he had an experience with God going through that pancreatic cancer and dealing with it. And he became a believer. And uh, the, the boy, a young man now, noticed the dramatic change in his father, in the relationship with his father, and saw how his father had completely reconciled his life with God. And so it compelled him to reconcile his life with his father. And uh, for the next four years that they shared life together, Um, They had a very good relationship, which prompted the young man to be able to become an artist uh, and be the person that he is today. We think about reconciliation. We think about the idea of what God calls us to do. I'm going to read some passages from 2 Corinthians. And then I'm going to flip back to Romans because you can't just about preach a sermon without going to Romans at some point. Uh, because it's so, it's so rich and good. But we're going to just go there, and I'm going to flow through, through this in a way I hope that will help you. There are a few notes on the, the board, but most of it's going to be what, God feel, what you feel God leading you to be able to write down. Let's pray and ask God to show us his word and what he wants us to do with it today. Lord, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to be able to love you. We're grateful for the opportunity that you loved us first. God, that you poured out your grace upon us to be able to challenge us to live a life that is holy and acceptable to you. God, we don't even know what that looks like. Help us to be able to discover your purpose for our life, God, to give us direction for our life. God, to be able to mend fences. God, to be able to create that flow of love that you've given to us, God, in our own life and in our own heart. Bless the words that they don't come back void, but they accomplish that which they are sent out to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at the commitment of Paul's ministry based on his desire for reconciliation to be able to preach that word. And when you think about that, why was Paul so committed to this? First, we have to think of Paul, right? Uh, I'm going to glean from 2 Corinthians, starting with uh, chapter 5 and verse 9 and 10. I I would start with 10, but I I have to include 9 there. Uh, 9 says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Him being God, right? Of course. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, we are going to break this down just a little bit. The first thing that inspired Paul's commitment, right? He embodied the ministry of reconciliation because he understood or embodied the coming 
of the Lord. He anticipated it. He knew what it was inevitable. Inevitable. You know, uh, recently my wife and I went to Washington D.C. and we didn't go with that purpose in mind. We went with the purpose of babysitting our grandchild. But while we were there, we got to go around and see things at Washington D.C. Uh, but one of the things we did was go to the Lincoln Memorial. And, um, you know, some people think of uh, the, the, the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ as like this podium, right, where you would have up here, you might have first, second, third. Uh, that's where they get the idea of the, uh, the Olympic podium from uh, for a conqueror, right, those who complete uh, their race and they come in first or second or third. I like to think of it more as the Lincoln Memorial. When you go to that place, it's so big and it's, it takes your breath away to see the magnificence of just that memorial, that building, right? It, it's, it's, it's very uh, 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 nostalgic and it, it's very majestic. And I think about that as Jesus Right. Being at the Bema seat. Right. And us standing before Paul saw this. He says, I recognize. Right. That I will give an account of my life. Right. Before Christ and his glory. It doesn't say that I'm going to give an account of my wife's life or my child's life. Right. I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to give an account of why they did what they did. The Bible says clearly that each person will give an account of their own life before Christ in the midst of his glory. Now, that doesn't just shake you and just strip you of all your own self. Then uh, then you need to ponder it for a little while. And understand that you'll be in the presence of all the glory of Christ. Right? Of Christ in his glory. What would we give an account for? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. And we have to go to Romans to do that. We're not going to give an account of our sin. Why not? Because we've already given an account for that. Christ did that, right? So when we look at that, we want to make sure that we understand. Romans 8 Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Please understand that as a believer, okay, God has accounted for your sin. And that sin has been paid for, has been uh, uh, accounted for through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not going to give account of our sins, right? We're going to give account for our actions, for our walk. What does that look like? Our love and our service. We're giving account of our own self. Let's look at Romans again. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes to the church at Rome, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, if there is any other commandment. 
Any of them you think of. Paul says they're all summed up into this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Right? Paul writes in Second Corinthians, or in Corinthians, in the love chapter, right? There are faith, hope, and charity, or love, and the greatest of these is love. Why so? Because he knows that love is the key to action. If you truly love, you truly serve. You truly engage. You truly accept, right? Jesus accepted us, died for us. We ought also to accept one another. And then the, the service aspect, right? Not our sin, but our love and our service. Think about it. Romans 12. Back to Romans. Romans 12. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not an idol. Not an icon. Not Right? Anything that is temporary, but something that is active, not to be on a shelf, but to be used, to be poured out, it's said in another passage. But he says, I, pres- I ask you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Another translation says, your act of worship right it is our worship it is our activity to love and serve one another and this drives Paul right to want to be able to share that love and that service and he talks about that look at me as an example that's why Paul could say that because he was so devoted to pursuing the love and service of Christ He's saying, just look at us and and be able to to build your life around things that are are valuable and and have purpose and and contribute to building the kingdom of God, bringing people to Christ. And for Paul, he even wrote what that would look like, just sharing some of the passage in Romans chapter 12, right? It's our behavior And starting with verse 9, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. That means, like, turn away from it, right? Cling to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. In other words, don't sly away or slack away in your diligence to pursue doing good right fervent in your spirit serving the lord rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation continuing steadfastly in prayer distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality bless those who persecute you bless and curse not rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep be of the same mind toward one another do not set your mind on high things lofty things but associate with the humble do not be wise in your own opinion And then he winds up saying in verse 21, in fact, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You've got to make a conscious decision to pursue, right? Paul understood. He anticipated the coming of the Lord and the fact that the Lord is in the middle of everything that's going on in his life. 
in everything that's going on in your life, in your family, in your workplace, in your schools, right? God is in the middle of it. And he's inviting you to be able to see him and what he desires for you to do in the midst of these situations of your life, no matter what it might be. God has a plan or a purpose or a destiny for you to fulfill in that place. Paul's vision of standing before God motivated him to give his best. And at that I say, Selah. The second thing is that Paul acknowledged the comprehension of the Lord. And for that we'll read verses 11, 12, and 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but, are, but we are well known to God. And I trust are well known in your consciousness, and he could say as well, right? To put it in our proper English, right? He's saying nothing is hidden from God. But I hope that through my life example and my testimony that you know us as well. And then in verse uh, 12 and 13, it says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Right? Frivolous. Does that remind you of somebody else in the New Testament, the Pharisees, right? And their pumped uh, uh, attitude toward Christ. And the publicans and those who were trying to follow Christ, right? They were very biased. They were very jealous. And they uh, were very uh, prideful. And then he says in verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. In other words, our desire is to be able to go vertical and horizontal, right? In my relationship with God and in what you see and how I relate to you. How I relate to you as a brother or sister or friend, right, is determined on how I'm relating to God. And Paul is tying these two together. He understands, right? Paul realizes that his life was an open book before God and before men. Just like we are. We maybe don't realize it. But people do, right, watch our life. People do take note of how you respond to difficulty, right? Of how you respond to the opportunity for pride, right, or humility. The things that you put off. And the things that you put on, Paul describes it, make a difference because people notice that. People see your life before him, right? And before them. The realization that Paul had because of this, right, was an innate fear of God. Notice that in verse 11. He says, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Right? Understanding that what you see, right, God already knows. 
And you let that sit for a minute, right? Think about that. The attitude that you have, God already knows, right? The things that you've said, God already knows. The things that you think or feel, God already knows. There's nothing in your life that you hide from God. And that should take us to a place of of being like Moses at the burning bush, right? When we think of Moses at the burning bush, we're thinking, oh, God, you know, God calls him up there to that burning bush. And and, uh, Moses is awestruck, right? In his finite mind, he's thinking that's a bush that's burning and it doesn't burn up. You know, this is pretty awesome. This is amazing. I'm intrigued. I'm following this. Where does it take me next? And all of a sudden, God says, Moses, and it freaks Moses out, right? But he says, Moses, Moses, right? Take your shoes from off your feet because the place that you're standing is holy ground. And I use this illustration in, in another message because I think to myself, really? <laughs> that makes things all better? Makes Moses feel better? I just take off my shoes, right? It'd be nice if we could just take off our, our little jacket of selfishness and our little jacket of pride and our little jacket of envy and our, our little jacket of greed and just leave it at the door so that when we come into the church, we're all better, right? And we leave all that out there. And it's not the way it works. It had nothing to do with Moses' shoes. It had everything to do with knowing that God is bigger than anything you can imagine, Right? God knew Moses. It wasn't about Moses. Right? It was about God. Right? And God had to train and he had to encourage Moses to understand, Moses, it's not about you. You can't do anything that can make it okay. Right? I'm still choosing you. And this is where Paul was. Paul's saying he knows he can, even though he had been reconciled with God, he could not do anything anything to earn merit of the father and he knew that god knows everything about me there's not anything i do that he doesn't know there's not anything i think that he doesn't know i'm just you know i'm i'm just a a wind a vapor and god is calling us to be reconciled to him paul understood that How would you describe this fear if you had to? I think of this as the respect of a child who does not want to do anything that would break the heart of his father. Right. And and you've probably seen your movie, your favorite movie about relationship. Right. And, And what length goes to Paul has his own version. Right. And Romans. I love the book of Romans. Did I already say that? Romans 8. Verse 15, one of my favorite life verses. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. And we do that so easily. Now that we're in this God thing, it's like we don't want to upset God. Really? Like he doesn't know? Okay, we need to understand that there's nothing that God doesn't already know. We haven't received a spirit of bondage. God did not save us to a spirit of, I don't know if I'm good enough for God. It's not about whether you're good enough. You, you, you weren't. I'll go ahead and tell you now, right, to make it easy on you, right? 
God does the work. It says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. You weren't blood. You have been sealed by the spirit of adoption. God didn't make you an angel. He didn't make you saved. He made you like him in his image. And his desire is for you to love him and know how much he loves you. And Paul goes on and he says, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. When I grew up, I didn't have much of a family father figure. I had to go find some, right? A lot of times in our lives, that's just the way it is. You either do or don't, depending upon the plight of life that you go into. But I found some men that were great fathers that were willing to be able to pour into me to help me develop fatherly character. When I became a father, I had to rely on them because I didn't know, right? I didn't have that. And God is saying, you don't know, you don't have it, but I want to pour it into you, right? The spirit of reconciliation is being poured into you. We can go from having no value and no respect to a place of understanding, right? That you can't be a father if you don't know the heart of the father. So I'm going to challenge you this morning to reach into the depths of your soul and spirit and begin to know the heart of the Father who loves you and gave His Son for you. You can't be a father if you don't know the heart of a father. Selah. The third thing that Paul really understood was that he embraced the compassion of the Lord. He had understanding of the great compassion of the Lord. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians. They say, for the love of Christ compels me. Because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Right? We don't live to ourselves because we're dead. Okay? Spiritually, theologically stating, we have been made new. And we'll talk about that. But we need to understand that our old man has been crucified with Christ. And we are new. We have been made whole. We have been adopted and declared eternally righteous before God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul was ever mindful of the love of Christ that constrained him and compelled him. That compel can mean control, right? Do you feel like that the love of Christ controls you? Do you feel compelled because of the love of Christ? 
Paul says it this way with this word. There is no choice. Right. The love of Christ compels. There's no choice. Paul says it can't be any other way. The love of Christ compels. Paul had a strong conviction because of Christ's death on the cross. Now you need to understand, maybe you haven't had the Damascus Road experience like Paul, right? Now I get it. I understand that. But you have had the same salvation experience. Don't come to me and tell me that I just don't feel like, you know, I got saved when I got saved. I'm just not living my life like I ought to. You know what? That's very commonplace for us in this normal Christian life. Right. But what we need to understand is, is that there is a clear vision that should compel us to live like God wants us to live. And Paul describes it in verse 15 with two things. He says, first, Christ died for all. So Paul had a Damascus Road experience. Okay, good. Peter was hung upside down on a cross. You hadn't done that either. Right. We need to understand that God called Paul and God called Peter, but God also called you. And he called me. And my life is just as significant to God as Paul's. He cares about me just as much as he does Peter. Christ died for all. And there is no less reality of Christ's death for your life than there was for Paul. The second thing is, is that Christ did it with intention, with a purpose. Right? Christ did not come with the hope that you would choose him. Christ came with a written destiny paper from God that says, Jason's going to choose me. That's why you've got to go to the cross. Eric's going to choose me. That's why you've got to go to the cross. If it was just for Jason, God would have said, Jason's going to choose me. You remember? That's what he said about the city. All right, go back there and find one. Just go find one. Right? God died with a purpose. Jesus died on the cross. He chose the cross. God said, Jesus, you've got to go. And Jesus said, that's a really hard road, Father. That's not an easy out. And Father said, I know. Right? But I love James. And this is what we got to do. Right? Paul had strong convictions about knowing that Christ died for everybody and he died for a purpose. You are his purpose. Realizing this, Paul could not live his life unto himself. Selah. Fourth thing, that Paul was admonished by the commission of the Lord. The commission of the Lord. And this is a rather lengthy passage. It goes from verses 16 all the way to verse 2 of chapter 6. And I'll read through parts of it as we need to. But verse 16, 17, and 18 is where we'll start. 
Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. In other words, Christ came, he was on the earth, and then he was resurrected and went back to heaven. We don't have him down here on the flesh anymore, right? But we still know him. All right, so he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 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 What does that mean? Two things which were separated and apart have been brought together. They were separated and now they're reunited. They're brought together, made whole. Was Jesus just a sin offering then? Like the lamb, right? The goat? I say no. He was not just a sin offering. When God reconciled us, He gives us three things. First, He gives us a new perspective. A new view of things, right? Verse 16 says, We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Recognize, the word could be used regard, consider, or estimate. We are to evaluate people on the basis of spiritual condition, right? Everybody should be acceptable, but we evaluate them on their spiritual condition. That's what drives my love, but it may help me understand to treat my wife a little bit differently than I would somebody else. Right? Or my friend a little bit differently than I would my brother. Okay? Because I know that I'm able to understand their spiritual condition. Are they a believer or are they not a believer? If they are a believer, are they a weak believer? Or are they coming along strong? How do I want to be able to help bring them closer to God? I have a new perspective now on my responsibility in my relationships with my circle of friends and family. Not only is there a new perspective, but there's also a new person, right? Old things, from which we get the term from the Greek text, archaic, right? I'm so glad I'm not archaic anymore. I'm old, but I'm not archaic, right? I've been made new, right? I have a new definition of life. I have been brought from the mire of sin and into new life in the presence and made alive by Christ. What does what was once vital for Christ becomes archaic in the life of Christ. I like to think of that as law and grace, right? We try to do good, we try to even if I'm a good person, I try to understand and obey the law. But when I become a believer, I'm no longer under the law. The law has done its duty by bringing me into my new life of grace because of Jesus Christ. But please understand that the law is not done away with. The law was a fulfilling matter in my life, right? Paul calls it the school teacher of life, right? It is that one thing that, that 
pole vaulted me into my relationship with God. The understanding that I could not attain the law. I could not, as a broken man, right, fulfill the law. That's why Jesus did it. Jesus fulfilled the law so we can receive grace. So you think about Paul before Christ and Paul after Christ, right? There's a story of a guy whose name is C.T. Studd. C.C. Studd uh, wound up going to uh, a college, met up uh, in Cambridge, and became a part of the Cambridge Seven, which were a missionary group that were kind of driven and encouraged by Hudson Taylor. And uh, he um, gave up a life of cricketeering. He was a a star athlete, uh, and he gave that up to be able to follow after Christ and become a missionary once someone was able to help encourage him to follow after the path of God. At his funeral, one of his coachmen from Cambridge recited, Though there's the same skin, there's a new man inside. And I saw it. C.C. Studd himself said in a quote, Some wish to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of the doors of hell. God had changed his life. Once he had been reconciled, new choices and new decisions were on display. Right? When we build into the relationship with God after we become a believer and his, he opens our eyes, it helps us to, to understand there are bigger and greater things than ourselves. Not only do we get new perspective, a new person, but we also get a new purpose. Verses 18 through 20 now, I'll slide down to verses 18 through 20. It says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Follow? That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses within them. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Right? A new purpose to help others discover the same experience that we've been able to enjoy. Just think about the people in your circle of life, right, that are walking in this world. Maybe they're good people, maybe they're not, right? But people that may, may not be walking in grace, but are still walking under the law, trying to do the best they can, or not trying to do the best they can, and they don't care, or they don't know they don't care, right? There are all these kinds of people in our circle of life. It is our opportunity to be compelled by Christ to share with them the life that we have experienced by becoming a believer. We do that through our actions, verse 18 says, and we do it through our witness, verse 19 says. In that day, an ambassador was uh, one who would administer imperial provinces under the emperor's direct commission or represent the Senate in trying to establish the terms by which a country could be made 
a province of Rome. So understand the difference between where we view it today and the way we view it. An ambassador today is someone that goes somewhere else and represents us, right? And uh, just shares with them what, whatever we can do in our relationship to make it better. An ambassador in the Roman times was someone who went out and negotiated a peaceful annex of your territory. They wanted to build Rome, right? They wanted more territory. They wanted to be able to say, you know, if you will comply and do this, we won't come in with our military and kill everyone, you know, in this town. An ambassador was much more assertive and driven. And Paul uses that example for these people to say, hey, guys, we are now ambassadors to take this message and to share it and to share the consequences of not following it. We are intentional in building the kingdom of God. And part of that is the opportunity for reconciliation. There's another missionary guy by the name of Palmer Ofuku. And Palmer Ofuku was raised by Christian parents in Nigeria. Uh, but he was not yet a Christian. So they, they sent him to a Christian school. And while at that Christian school, he got bullied and he got harassed by some. But there was a missionary that came and uh, was going to stay there. And this missionary took uh, uh, Palmer uh, under his wing and began to encourage him. And, and eventually, Palmer became a believer. And because he became a believer, he eventually became a missionary. And he was a missionary in China, Africa, and India and uh, for, for many years. And, and it is said that Palmer said of this missionary who came to his Christian school that was able to convert him, he built a bridge of friendship to me. And Jesus walked across it. Who do you need to build a bridge of friendship with? Who do you need to build a bridge of reconciliation with? My friends, failure to be his ambassadors would render God's grace inoperative in the lives of those who might so desperately need to hear it. You were given a little heart trinket, I call it. It's just a little piece of wood, and it's blank. What I want you to do is consider, hey, I may not do anything with this, but if Reverend, what I don't know what you call me, if Eric says to, to, I can use it this way, then then I'll pray about it. What I want you to do is I want you to think about this little heart as being a bridge of reconciliation. Is there someone in your walk of life, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a distant relative, maybe it's a friend from high school, maybe it's a brother or sister, maybe it's a co-worker, someone that you've had a challenging relationship, somebody that you once had a great relationship with and now it's broken. I want you to consider taking seriously the call of reconciliation that Paul says we have been called to do. It says we have been called with the ministry of reconciliation because we have been reconciled to God, right? I'd like for you to just think about putting their initials on this little trinket and I want you to keep it with you, right? Just keep it in your pocket, keep it close to you, keep it in your little purse, whatever you want to do to remind you of a commitment that you're making before the Lord today to be able to say, I want to fulfill God's purpose. He has reconciled my life 
with him, I want to be, I am compelled to reconcile my life with those who are in my life, right? Let us not receive this gift of grace in vain. Silah. The young man that grew up, started a music career, was a guy named Bart Millard. Bart Millard, after his dad died, uh, began to scratch on every little thing he could find, somebody, something that his grandmother had told him about his dad. She said of his son, of her son, right, uh, I can only imagine, you know, what he might be seeing in the presence of Jesus. And it just went through his mind, went through his mind, went through his mind. And within a year, he had written the song, I can only imagine, touching the lives of millions of people. What is God desiring? What is God calling? What is God compelling you to do this morning? I challenge you to consider it, right? Reflect on it and act on it, right? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you so much that you give us good things. We thank you, God, that you love us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our shortcomings, God, and in spite of our, our, uh, our, our anger, our brokenness, God, our inability, our, our inferior, uh, in, inferior complex. Uh, God, whatever those things are that, that keep us from, from wanting to step up and step into your love and your grace, God, help us, God, to be able to see that you see us that you care for us, God, that you desire us to just surrender, just like Moses. The, the, the shoes don't mean anything. Just come. Just come and let me work in your life. And we'll do amazing things together to build the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray.